We will continue in our series on Advent, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 22 is our text this morning. Uh, Let's pray once again and ask for God's blessing on our time in the Word. Father, in this world where we recognize that truth is hard to find, we thank you we don't need to to look any farther than your word. We ask you to apply your word to us, to our hearts, to our heads, and to our hands. May we find in your word Christ, uh, who is truth incarnate, so that we can believe and find rest in his name. Amen. So as you know, we're going through our Advent series, and uh, last week we did uh, we talked about our great need for a Savior, so the, we're going to talk about promise today. So we have our great need, our promise, the wait for a Savior, and then um, finally His arrival, and I think actually we'll end up the Sunday after Christmas, which is a little unorthodox for Advent, but that's all right. We're, we're fine with unorthodox, not in doctrine. Uh, this passage is interesting and I just noticed this for the first time Uh, Deuteronomy is in the form of a covenant and in a covenant you have um, stipulations you have the laws that the parties are meant to live up or are called to live up to and so much of Deuteronomy is these regulations and stipulations that are in the form of a covenant and this passage here is part of a broader passage that deals with the offices as the people go into the, the land they're he tells them what what to do. And specifically, these passages deal with the three offices that we're so familiar with. Sometimes I wonder, like, are we imposing these themes on Scripture? But right here, he deals with prophets, priests, and kings. Not in that order, but each office. He says, this is how these offices are to function when you go into the land. And so this passage in particular is dealing with the prophetic office, with the revelatory office. And uh, so that that's kind of the context of this passage. And that's why I, I had Michael print uh, a broader section and we'll be focusing of course on the familiar promise from verse 15 but um, all of it is relevant because it's all instructions to the prophetic about the prophetic office so um, with that context in mind let's stand and we will uh, I'll read aloud uh, the word of God Deuteronomy 18 9 through 22 Moses here is preaching. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired in the Lord of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you have, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is God's word. Last week we saw our great need for a Savior. We looked at Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind. And we saw that one of the areas that Satan loves to attack most is the revelation of God, is God's Word. He says, did God really say? That's one of his favorite tactics. And in our fallen state, we saw that our propensity is to take for ourselves things that we ought not to take. Um, We kind of try to become our own God. We try to define what worship is for ourselves. We define uh, what obedience is for ourselves. And we define truth itself for ourselves, or we try. Um, And just after the fall, we didn't read this, but God foreshadows the promise of a Savior in our familiar promise in Genesis 3.15, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And that's the first kind of proto-promise of the Messiah. And in doing so, this person would come and he would restore faith in the word of the Lord. The very thing the serpent tried to attack, he would restore us back to trusting again in the word of the Lord instead of ourselves. Um, so in, in so doing, then he would vanquish the, the serpent. And this passage, uh, our passage this morning, foreshadows Christ's role as our prophet, as restoring that, that revelatory office. He is a revelator. He, he comes to bring the unadulterated word of God. Unlike the serpent who, who twists and mutilates God's word, he would come to bring the unadulterated word to God's people. And in doing so, he saves us from our own self-idolatry, our own self-definition of everything, and he vanquishes the enemy. Um, Because as we know, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Revelation, God saves by his word. So that's why Satan loves to attack God's word. And Jesus comes to bring us the word. That's the promise. As we look today at the promise of a Savior, and that's what we find foreshadowed in this passage. Um, So the context is here that the Lord has been Israel's Savior. He brought them up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and He sustained them through the wilderness years. Now they're about to go into the wilderness, 
And Moses in Deuteronomy is basically three sermons preached by Moses before they go in. Um, And despite their being continuously rebellious, God has been a savior to them. He's brought them to the promised land. As he brings them in now, he calls on them to remain pure. All these Canaanites, these wicked people, he doesn't want them to be like them. He wants them to be pure as they go into the land. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is kind of man's search for revelation. Because we know uh, that we need revelation. We need some truth, something from outside of us. We're aware of that even in our sinful state. This, this is betrayed by things like the quest of a naturalist to kind of figure out the universe, to, to figure out how man ticks, how, how space ticks, how old the universe is. Like, this is. This is built into man that we need to know. We also see that betrayed um, in a spiritualist, who is somebody who tries to kind of reach behind the curtains of reality. And of course, we are just like our first parents. They took it upon themselves to define right and wrong and trying to obtain the knowledge of good and evil. And we, we just have to know everything. We, we can't be satisfied with what God has given us to know. We want to know everything. And that's because we bought the serpent's lie that, that we can be like God. Calvin has a great comment here. He says, The lust of men has carried them deeper so that they have desired to penetrate into all the most profound secrets. And then he goes on, But since men's curiosity is insatiable, they do not consider what is useful for them. But like Adam, desired to be as gods and to know all things without exception. We have an insatiable curiosity and to know things about God is... A good thing to know things about his creation and his world and how he's made everything. But like he says, uh, our imaginations, we, we get carried away. We want to know things we are not meant to know. Uh, we also have a natural awareness of the other realm, that there is a spiritual realm. We're spiritual creatures that's built into us. We also know that we can access it and gain knowledge from it. And our corrupted desire for all the knowledge and all and our corrupted means by which we obtain knowledge, we seek to obtain truths uh, through magic arts, as some people call them. They're described here in verse 10 as divination, telling fortunes, telling fortunes, interpreting omens, um, sorcery, charmer or medium, necromancer, uh, one who inquires of the dead. Uh, these things are a bit foreign to us, I think, as Westerners, but they're real, and they—they, I think, they're gaining more popularity again. Um, uh, when I think of a fortune teller, I think of like the, the stereotypical, like, kooky lady with the, the bandana and the globe, and and kind of a huckster that that doesn't really have access to another spiritual realm, but ha- has skills in observation and, and manipulating words to make it sound insightful. That's what I think of when I think of these things. Um, but we we have to be clear that there is another realm and there are means of engaging that realm. I don't think we do ourselves any favors by denying that. Um, now I'm not a person who's of the opinion. Maybe you are. We can 
disagree but that every fantasy film or novel that includes a magic art is like straight from the pit of hell <laughs> i don't think you'll become demon possessed by reading harry potter or something uh, but we also ought not to take these things lightly uh, i was talking with a father recently his son was been playing some game like uh dungeons and dragons or something and he was kind of concerned about some of this and he and we were talking about that and, and naturally his son and his friends just think well it's just fun it's it's harmless it doesn't there's, there's nothing real there but some of those things and i'm not i don't know the case in this case but some of those things can start to blur the line start to cross over and start to engage in some of these things god forbids in this passage uh, uh spiritual um things and so I think there's a couple of grave errors we can fall into when we talk about these things. It's first that the, the other realm doesn't exist or that we can't interact with it. And secondly, that when we encounter spiritual forces, if we were to engage in those activities, those forces or, or beings that we encounter somehow have our best interests in mind or are speaking truth to us. Uh, for many people, uh, a spiritual experience is the litmus test for truth so if i had this experience therefore it's true but we have to be careful with that because just because a person has seen something like that's what i find when i have these discussions like oh i was in i was in panama or i was in in africa and i've seen things (laughs) well okay (laughs) Uh, just because you see something you can't explain doesn't necessarily mean it's from god there are other spiritual forces at play the evil one does appear as an angel of light. So we have to be very careful with these things. And I think we misplace, categorically misplace, these kinds of practices if we only put them in the category of kooky hucksters, which I think 95% of those, these people might be these days. But if we only place them in that category, um, then, then we go wrong. But we're better off categorizing them as actual practices, but practices forbidden by God for our own good. <laughs> God is calling out to his people here through Moses to say, uh, don't adopt worldly forms of revelation. That's essentially what I think he's saying. Don't, be, be content with God's revelation. Don't be contented with the revelation that God has given you. Don't be content, discontented either with the means he's given you to obtain his revelation. And we can see here, too, the, the, the results. We can see where a self-defined, self-defined revelation leads. Uh, in verse 10, we can see the worship practices that go along with these things. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Uh, we're familiar with that, the Baal worship, the the, the um, metal idol with the arms outstretched that they would heat and place their infants on and burn their children. This is the result of self-defined revelation, of going off on our own idolatry. And it's not far off from what we see today. The fruit of our favorite religion is selfism. Um, it, it's fruitless, I think, to argue with a person, a, a, a cho-life, uh, pro-life person, who, who's using the, the familiar fetus argument. Um, if they're using that argument, they're behind the times because secular science has proven 
That's a person in there. I mean, it's just, it's been proven. So if they're using that fetus argument, they're behind the time, their own times. <laughs> uh, they know what they're doing is murder. They practice human sacrifice in the name of their own religion, selfism. And they're laying their children on the altar of the God of themselves. It's very similar because we're adopting our own version of revelation. The forms of revelation that we come up with, they're not good. They lead to darkness and to death, which is why God forbids his people from participating in them. And he, he calls his people, he calls us to be separate, to be separate from the world. He says in verse 13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, the Canaanites and the land they're going into, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. They do that. But as for you, the Lord, your God, has not allowed you to do this. So there's a call to be distinct in their worship, but also in their means of obtaining revelation and where they get it from and who they get it from. Worldly forms of revelation come also in all shapes and sizes. Just as one example, in recent years, an obvious one is science. Um, we, we like to use science as a, a means of revelation. And it seems to be in our world that it is kind of the last word on all things. It's the only means of explaining the world, apparently. And of course, I'm not anti-science. I love science. I, Cohen and I share this great intrigue into science i think it's wonderful it's opened the door into a whole new worlds of general revelation that humankind has never seen before it's truly amazing Uh, but we have to be clear that the scientific method is not the prophetic word of god the written word is the primary revelation both in capacity and clarity. And so we have, we have to keep that in mind. So whatever it is, that's just one example. Um, but we, are, we have a tendency to just adopt worldly forms of revelation, other means of understanding the world, uh, truth, and the knowledge of God. It's just, it's just another manifestation of the, um, the, our obtaining the knowledge of good and evil, like we talked about last week. So where we're going to turn next is God's provision of revelation. In contrast to worldly revelation, false revelation, God offers his people the promise of the provision of his word. So in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Uh, it's tempting, especially in an Advent sermon, to rush in and talk about how this is Christ. <laughs> Verse 15 is all about Christ, and it, it is. But I think we need to consider the original application first, um, because God didn't leave those people without his revelation either. He didn't say, well, don't consult the mediums and necromancers, and then just leave it there. He, he's offering them his word. In verses 20 and 22, we see instructions for dealing with false prophets. Um, The people are supposed to test it by whether or not it comes true. And he says, presumptuous prophecy, saying, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord didn't say thus. That's a capital offense. They must die. It's very serious. A true prophet will only ever speak the words that the Lord has given them. Um, So we see that there is a fulfillment of this, this prophecy Uh, in this passage, even for them. 
God will raise up prophets. I think Joshua is the first most obvious successor to Moses. Someone God, God will raise up like Moses to, to preach the word. But from the beginning all the way up to John the Baptist and even Jesus, God has been raising up prophets, men who would receive his word and speak it to the people. And that's what a prophet does. He plays this mediatorial role. He's a go-between between God and man. Priests are a go-between uh, this direction in worship toward God from man. Prophets are a go-between in the other direction, the word of the Lord coming down to us. That's what makes a prophet like Moses, is that he's a mediator. Uh, and we need that go-between because if we, as sinful and frail human beings, were to receive the word of the Lord directly, uh, we would be a smoking pile of goo. <laughs> We'd be incinerated immediately. We can't handle it. This is what we see as an example in verses 16 through 19, where he says, Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Um, so if you want to turn over, the, the story is from Exodus 19 and 20. If you want to turn over there and read the story a little bit. <clears throat> it is the story of the event in the wilderness of God's descent on Mount Sinai for the Ten Commandments. Sinai and Horeb are interchangeable <laughs> terms. So in our text it says Horeb, but in Exodus it says Sinai. This is the event of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And sometimes I just think of them as like stones. But this was, this was an amazing event in the history of God's people. So in Exodus 19, verse 16, beginning in verse 16, where God is descending on the mountain, it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand on the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then after giving the Ten Commandments, uh, we read in chapter 20, in verses 18 and 19, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. <laughs> um, keep in mind here too that thunder and lightning and smoke are not God they're also a veiled manifestation of God and even that was far too much for the people they were terrified and they said you, you, do, you talk to God we don't, we're too afraid 
I think this paints for us a, the kind of a, a picture of the kind of reverence we should have for the Word of God. Um, that that form of reverence is scarce in our day because we here we have this tattered book and that is that the Word of God? Like is this fire and smoke and thunder and trumpets on, on a mountain? Um, do, do we have that kind of reverence for the Word of God? I think as God works in us by his Holy Spirit to sanctify us, we do grow in a reverence for the word that reflects this reality. That that is so powerful that a, a man, a particular man, had to be raised up and specifically gifted to take on this role of prophet, of mediator. Or that that God raised these prophets up and gave them the, the very words to speak, that they spoke the words of God. I mean... Amos, you know, like the most obscure prophet. God gave him words to speak and he spoke them. And that the word also carries an authority from God, from the prophets. That, that it's spoken in his name. That's what it says. It's spoken in his name and that he will require it of any who do not listen. That, that means judgment. <laughs> he will require judgment on any who do not listen to the prophet. So it carries a weight of authority. So sometimes we forget that that old tattered book that we read is revelation from God put into the mouths and pens of men and put there for our salvation. But there are also words that spoken directly to us would kill us in an instant. Now the word of God spoken by the prophets, say the Old Testament prophets, is an abundant provision of revelation. That God would speak to us at all, that he would reveal himself to us at all, is an abundant provision of revelation. But he doesn't stop there because he's very generous. Unlike what the serpent wants us to believe, that he's stingy. God said you can eat from any tree of the garden. He's very generous. He goes on. There is another prophet who's like Moses. Now, the Jews uh, in Jesus' day were on the lookout for the prophet who was to come from this passage from verse 15. They asked John the Baptist, they said, are you the Christ? He said, no. Are you Elijah? He said, no. Mistakenly, he was. (laughs) I said, are you the prophet? Oh, they're they're on the search. Who's the prophet? What are they talking about? Deuteronomy 18.15. God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Are you the prophet? They were on the search for this person. Also, Philip was convinced in John 1. He hurries to find Nathanael and he announces to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And then also another example, the Apostle Peter is preaching um, and he preaches in Acts chapter 3, 19 through 24. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And he says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. But you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And then he, he interprets that line, and I shall require of it of, of him. He interprets that here. It's more powerful, I think. He says, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And he says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days. So clearly, even though there is an immediate fulfillment in that this passage of Deuteronomy 18, that God will raise up prophets, Jesus is the prophet, the one like Moses, the mediator. And that, here's what I want us to see in kind of the connection to the Advent season is kind of the over-the-top generosity and God's provision of a revelation for His people in the incarnation of Jesus and Jesus taking on flesh. We remember that the devil's lies paint God as stingy. He kind of, with, with regard to revelation, you can almost hear him saying, uh, God won't let you peek behind the curtain even though you want to. Like what a stingy God. He's controlling the flow of information. He's not letting you have your freedom. But if we think about this, that God has given us the prophet. He came and he spoke all the Father told him to speak. He, he didn't speak a word that wasn't given to him. He's a perfect prophet. When Jesus was transfigured before the disciples standing with Jesus were... Moses and Elijah. And what does God say? He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He is the prophet to whom we must listen. But but God, true to his character, his overflowing abundance of love and generosity fills this prophecy to full and to beyond overflowing. He goes so far beyond what anyone could have imagined in giving us the prophet in that the Word became flesh. The incarnate Word of God. That, that horrible divide where God walked among us in the garden, in the cool of the garden, and we hid in the bushes, that, that's been reconciled in God, in God and in Christ and in the incarnation, in a person. God and man come together in a single person, Jesus Christ. So the mediator, the one like Moses, is God and man. Then there's kind of a, I hope this isn't heretical, but an unmediated mediation going on here. Because Christ is our mediator, but he's also God, and we get to directly commune with Christ. The one who mediates and delivers God's word to us is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Not only does he enunciate God's word, but he is the word, the personal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So as sinners, we desperately need... God to speak. Salvation comes by faith and faith comes by hearing. We need the word of God if we're going to be saved. If God doesn't speak, we won't be saved. God promised in so many places, in so many ways, that the Savior would come. And Moses here foretells the prophet who would come, who like him would speak the word of God. And the prophet has come and he is the word of God. So I want to leave you uh, with this word from Hebrews 12 as an encouragement to believe in the prophet who has come. Hebrews 12, 18-24 For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given. If any beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that he speaks, a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen.